just embracing your ancestral foods really does give you that connection to your ancestors. You know, the boarding school era and the dispossession of land era and all of that, all of that just washes away. In one season, in, in one bite of that food, you regain that connection. And it's just an incredibly beautiful and powerful thing. Bujun and Dinoe Maganatug, greetings relatives. My name is Melissa Nelson, and I'm your host and gardener. Welcome to the Native Seed Pod, a podcast aimed at celebrating the diversity and beauty of native seeds, soils, and indigenous foods. Well, I want to say Bujun and Dinoy Maganatuk, greetings to you as a relative of the large Anishinaabe nation. And I would like to offer here some tobacco that we grew with some beautiful white buffalo calf woman tobacco that Rowan White had gifted us with and that we planted here at the Indian Valley Organic Farm and Garden. And I just want to say miigwech and thank you for taking the time, Shelley, to tell us about your amazing work with the Meskwaki Food Sovereignty Initiative and being a seed keeper. So if you wouldn't mind, we'd love for you to introduce yourself to the audience and welcome you to the Native Seed Pod. Well, thank you. My name is Shelley Buffalo, and I'm a member of the Meskwaki tribe in central Iowa. I've had the pleasure of working for Meskwaki Food Sovereignty Initiative, first as farm stand coordinator with Red Earth Gardens, and then as the food sovereignty coordinator. And so I have left that position, and I'm excited to find out who's going to fill it next. I've heard some preliminary reports about some people that are interested, one person from the Meskwaki community. So I'm really excited to see who's gonna take that role next. I'm continuing my seed work as a seasonal seed steward with Seed Savers Exchange in Northeastern Iowa. And I'm also interested in that area as there's a lot of local foods efforts going on and so I really am going up there to deepen my knowledge in local food system, regenerative agriculture, communal farming, and you know just that type of that those type of systems. Wonderful! Wow, that's going to be an exciting move for you. You're looking forward to it. I am. I am. I have a bit of a restless heart, so <laughs> I'm always looking for my next big adventure. So I am you know, I'm excited. That was a very difficult position to leave behind, food sovereignty coordinator. Like my, I was so passionate about the work I was doing and, you know, it it was not an easy choice, but Hmm. forward momentum has always been one of my strong points. So Absolutely. It's going to be a great adventure, like you said, and the Mm -hmm. Seed Savers Exchange, it will enrich that work so much. Thank you for that. 
Wonderful. And for um, those in our audience who may not be as familiar with the Meskwaki Nation and the Meskwaki people, it would be great to get a little bit of history or just a little bit of background. I think you're the only recognized tribe in Iowa. Is that correct? We are. There are, I mean, let's see, the Winnebago tribe does have a little bit of a land holding out in way, way western Iowa. But as far as like really, you know, occupying our lands, yes, Meskwaki is the only tribe in Iowa that's, you know, that has occupancy on their tribal mm -hmm. lands. And so we originated from the St. Lawrence River Valley in what is now, you know, upstate New York. And our language belongs to the Algonquian language group. So we're related to the Anishinaabe people. We're related to, you know, the Shawnees and the Cree. And there's many, many more that I'm, you know, not thinking of immediately. We were allied with the Haudenosaunee out there on the East Coast. But we, you know, probably, I don't even know what, what exactly, how many hundreds of years ago that we started our migration through the Great Lakes region, probably at least 200 years ago, if not, mm -hmm. you know, maybe 250, something like that. Mm -hmm. Started mm -hmm. migrating west through that region. And one of the significant his historic sites of our our fox villages was along the fox river and in that area of like appleton wisconsin and such and so mm. there's a, there's a area called the bell site that has a lot of pottery shards that shows you know former Meskwaki. we were called the fox by the french so but i Many historians attribute the Meskwaki to the fact that we don't speak French here in the United States, or at least the upper Midwest. We pose such a challenge to New France to the point where they, they pretty much had to divest themselves of the region. And it's mm -hmm. also my opinion that our war with France probably helped to spark the French Revolution because the war was like so long and costly mm. that really it was that, I don't know all of my French revolution, but I do know that a, a lot of it came down to money, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah, it did. It did. So strong warrior tradition. Yeah. Way back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good, good. Well, thank you for that history. That's so important. And I knew that, you know, the, the roots were in the St. Lawrence um, Seaway where so many of our Anishinaabe, you know, ancestors and the Three Fires Confederacy mm -hmm. and the Seventh Fires migration that was shared um, throughout the whole Great Lakes and, and larger regions. So thank you for that. Yeah, and we were, we were allied with Tecumseh, the Shawnee leader. We were allied with Black Hawk. There were some of our people that were involved in the Black Hawk War, including one of my ancestors who survived mm. it naturally. We eventually uh, settled here in Iowa via Kansas. Ah. That's where the mm -hmm. reservation was, Kansas and then Oklahoma, where we were, you know, removed to. But we we had leaders, you know, that that were just strong in determining their own fates and came migrated back to Iowa and chose this area along the Iowa River. It's it's bluffy here. And I believe that they, they felt it was a good area that had a lot of the plants and medicines that were important to Meskwaki. So it's like they, they sought out the ecology that they could work with, yes. that they were familiar with, which is a riparian woodland, just the woodland fringe. So not all the, right. the 
out in Kansas, that's full on prairie out there. Full on prairie. Yes. A huge difference. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Just like some of my ancestors who went from, you know, further East Great Lakes into White Earth, uh, Minnesota, and then further West into the Turtle Mountains of North Dakota, where similar woodlands, riparian woodlands, because it was more familiar with the berries and the moose and the birch and yeah, mm -hmm. some of the familiar, like you said, homeland plants. Yeah. yeah. And the maple trees and yes, all of that stuff. So we, yeah. we purchased our first 80 acres here. And um, that now is over 8,000 acres. It's 8,400 acres. Of, wow, that's your homeland. Yeah. Um, your reservation land base in Iowa. Well, actually, we're a settlement because we bought. Your settlement. Yeah, we purchased mm -hmm. this land, so we are a settlement, not a reservation. Mm, okay, good. So, good. We, so you have even more autonomy in a way. Yeah, I think we've been fortunate in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, great. Tell me a little bit more, too, about the, the Meskwaki Food Sovereignty Initiative and some of its origins and some of the, the great work you've been doing um, there in multiple roles. Sure. So Meskwaki Food Sovereignty Initiative was started in 2012, and it was part of an economic new department, economic development. So you know, one of the, the major goals was to start a organic vegetable farm for Meskwaki. And so to address, you know, the need for local foods as well as the need for healthy food and sustainable food. So that was accomplished. That community garden evolved into red earth gardens. And so we've got a farm down, you know, a vegetable production farm down there with a pack shed, with a greenhouse and several high tunnels for, you know, an extended season vegetable production. Oh, great. Tell me a little bit more about high tunnels, if you can d define those a little bit for us. Well, high tunnels are kind of unheated greenhouse. Mm -hmm. They're galvanized steel frame that has heavy-duty plastic stretched over it and the ends are closed up. So that can really, for one thing, that helps you control, basically control the weather a little bit. Mm-hmm. You of know, course. so you're yeah. not you're not getting too wet or too dry of soil. It mm -hmm. extends your season out. Yeah. So you can start your, your plants in the ground earlier because your soil is warming up a little bit mm -hmm. earlier than mm -hmm. that's just ex the, than the soil that's exposed to the elements. And then the same thing later in the season, you can grow out, you know, later in the season. So it really does extend your season and it gives you more climate control, more control. Yeah. And especially with climate change, we're finding here in Iowa, we're finding that we're having very cool wet springs and then dry, hot summers. So we're just getting like so much rain in the spring and it's kind of the, the temperatures stay kind of a little bit cool. And so it's hard to get seeds in the ground. It's hard to get stuff started. And then very quickly that, transi that transitions into just hot, dry weather. So that's been the pattern. And so the high tunnels allow you to control that a lot more, you know, especially for vegetable production, you know, that's not easy work. Yeah, so Red Earth Gardens really, uh, last year, they had many challenges. Of course, the pandemic had challenges. And then we also, in August, we had a derecho come through, which is an inland hurricane. 
and that did a lot of damage. And uh, so Red Earth Gardens, just like the Food Sovereignty Initiative, you know, we're still in a recovery period and a rebuilding year from all of the challenges and the damage and, you know, loss of staff because of budget cuts, things like that that happened over the course of 2020. And then with us, with Food Sovereignty, you know, one of the areas that we focus on is with our traditional foods. So that's primarily, that's gonna be corn, beans, and squash. Mm-hmm. And Meskwaki has has their own corn seed. It's a, the common name is Tama Flint. And we've had that seed for, what I've heard that it's probably over 3,000 years. And so it's multicolored. When we were picking and processing the corn, I took some really pretty pictures with it and on the cob, you know, and posted it to Instagram. Like I just couldn't, you know, I could, couldn't stop taking pictures of it because it's one of, um, one of the folks that were helping us to uh, shuck and process our corn. He said, this is like, you know, Christmas, you know, every time you pull back the, pull back the, the ears, you, you know, the husks on it, you just don't know what you're going to get. I mean, each, each one is beautiful, but a little different from the last. The Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by Tamil Pius Trust. To contribute to our polyculture and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org. Red Earth Gardens is the vegetable production farm. It's about 40 acres, but not all of those acres are in production. It's, you know, more like, you know, three or four acres are actually involved in the production and the rest is kind of, you know, there's some beehives out there and asparagus, you know, a little bit of everything. And then then a large area is used for the um, pasture-raised chickens. Because of derecho, their chicken operation was destroyed, but they're going to be getting some chicken trucks, which are heavier and can move across that pasture area. So I'm really excited for them for that. So Food Sovereignty has their own gardens. And so we have basically, you know, it's a seed garden. The primary purpose is to grow out our, our different varieties, 
We have one variety of corn, the tame of Flint, but we have several varieties of beans and several varieties of squash. We were able to get some rematriated watermelon seed from Seed Savers and uh, grow that out as well as some summer squash and sunflowers. And I love putting a lot of different flowers in there. So just your, you know, common garden flowers and zinnias because out there at that garden, there's also a beehive. And so our, our pollinators really like all of the flowers that we plant out there. And we humans love them too. <laughs> And last year we started using, through the seed rematriation with Seed Savers, they sent us a nice mix for cover crops, mainly, you know, a variety of low growing clover, which is really good at fixing nitrogen. So we planted that in between our corn rolls and it did a great job. It came up quick and it really covered all of that ground really nicely and it helped keep the weeds down really effectively in the corn. So we were really pleased with that. We don't do the Three Sisters interplanting, you know, where you do corn, beans, and squash together, but we do them alongside each other. So especially the squash will travel into the corn and, and even, you know, sometimes make its way up the corn stalks. One thing that the DeRachel revealed is that there next to our seed gardens was a community member garden who he had just planted corn with his family and he did his corn planting on a grid and mounded it up and and because those plants were more spread out and of course because he mounded up the dirt you know that just once you get your your corn growing you mound it up a little bit and that really helps to support those stalks and so he didn't have nearly the damage that we had on our corn rows. So, and that's, you know, the style he did it in was, you know, an old school style, you know, more of a traditional style of the grid and the mounding. And also just more room for, you know, those corn plants to source the nutrients in the soil. They're not so crowded. We did have, let's see, I'm thinking our squash varieties. So the varieties that we've been consistently growing are Blue Hubbard and Kushaw. I grew out a variety that is a rematriated seed that I got from Elena Terry. She brought it here. It's a Taos Pueblo Hubbard. And so that's a, that's a seed that was uh, rematriated to the Taos Pueblo. But through the indigenous chef, it came up to Iowa and the first year she gave it to Red Earth Gardens to grow out to the farm manager. And in the following spring, when we had a community meal, she came back and she cooked, you know, she selected those squashes and cooked it for the community meal that we had. And so I saved seed from that and I grew it out last year and it loves it here. It absolutely grows fantastic here. Hey, 
there's, I'm trying to think, there's another squash variety. Well, we have cornfield pumpkin, which I got from Dan Cornelius. And that's, that's an awesome pumpkin seed. I just love it. I love eating that pumpkin. It, you know, it just, it's an excellent one for, you know, soups and I don't know, you name it. Like it tastes really good and it grows really well, really prolific. So Luke Capeu, who's a tribal member who's new to Meskwaki Food Sovereignty, he's the new ancestral farming manager. And so he has a variety that he's brought back and it's a kickapoo squash. And so this year he's going to um, include that in the rotation too, you know, as they're gearing up for a new growing season. Mm-hmm. So, so we have, yeah, the number of squash varieties. There's also a blue flower, it's called fox blue, that we are getting from Michigan. Wonderful. A fox blue squash? No, No. fox blue corn. Fox blue corn. Great. Fox blue corn. Yeah. So I'm going to, you know, sometime this spring before I start work with Seed Savers, I'm going to head out there to Michigan. They're holding it for me. So there's a little bit of story with that one that I'll find out more about. But I think it's a variety of flower corn. Like our our tame of flint, of course, is like a flint variety. Mm-hmm. Um, and we how we process it, you know, is a couple of different ways. We we take the green corn and parboil it and then dry that. And then that can be stored dried. And then of course with the with the rest that we allow to go to seed, yeah, you know, we make sure that's nice and dry and then that's that's dry storage. Some of it goes to seed, some of it goes to dugwahan, which is a kind of cracked corn, kind of like grits, mm-hmm. dugwahan. Mm-hmm. And then the other method, of course, is that you can nixtamalize the corn into hominy. Right. So those are, you know, a few different methods that, you know, for our, our storage and for, you know, food. Mm-hmm. One of our favorite dishes with our corn is using that green corn that's been boiled and then dried in the sun. And that makes just a really delicious corn soup. And so that's what I have in the crock pot right now. It's corn and it's a red bean. That's a Meskwaki bean. It's a climber. And then, then a bison roast. Mm. Mm. Oh my goodness, you are really making me hungry now. That sounds so good. That's that's the best food ever. Yeah, the red beans are great. We grow a Navajo red bean that is so delicious too. And so you combine the the tama corn. Tama. Yeah, the tama corn yeah. that has been dried in the sun with your Meskwaki red bean and some bison. Oh, what a great stew. That sounds fantastic. And so you do quite a bit with bison as well, right? Speaking of bison, I saw on your great Facebook page that you do a lot of bison redistribution and do you actually Mm -hmm. have a bison herd or you have access to bison ranchers in your community or in your area? Well, we do both. Mm -hmm. We have, so Meskwaki Natural Resources is the department that manages our buffalo herd here. And they, every fall, they, they cull the herd and they have their own meat distribution program through that. This year with the pandemic, the Food Sovereignty Initiative, we got some funding from First Nations for COVID relief. And so we use that funding to pay for purchase of like three bison, 
actually, through area ranchers that went to the locker for processing, and then we were able to then distribute that to the community. Mm. So we just did a distribution just at the very, let's see, I think it was the third week of February. It was still bitter, bitter cold. It's before that weather finally started to warm up. So we were able to use our pickup truck as a refrigerator <laughs> to keep all that. <laughs> we were not worried about the You were not spoiling. worried about it, yes. You had sub-zero no. weather. You had out, walk outside as a refrigerator, yes. Yeah, we had our walk, walk outside freezer. Yes. So we were able to do, between those three animals, we were able to do two different distributions, one in, one in December and then one in February which supplemented the regular distribution that Meskwaki Natural Resources does with the tribal herd. And people were very appreciative of that. You know, people really do enjoy the bison meat. And of course, it's incredibly healthy for us. It's our culturally appropriate meat. And it's, you know, we, we want to get folks used to eating that, you know, get that, their pallets, you know, keep it as well as like our corn and our beans and squash and our, our you know, our traditional foods and our foraged foods too. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure people keep their taste for it, you know, because it's, it's so good for them, so healthy for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, holistically speaking, we, you know, we need to eat the food that is helping to regenerate the land. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. when we're eating pasture-raised bison or other pasture-raised, you know, whether it's elk, bison, or even, you know, chickens, that that's really important. That's an important part of our, you know, holistic management of the land. And these are because these are incredibly healthy animals that are eating things that, you know, they're meant to eat, you know, that completes that cycle of regeneration. Beautiful, beautiful, absolutely. Getting back to your role as a seed keeper, you know, we've talked to many different folks involved with seed keeping, and I know you've been involved with the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network with Rowan White, and and just a little bit more about what it means to be a, a keeper of our ancestral seeds and some of the seed rematriation work that, you know, you're excited about that is in process or that's coming to you, some of the seeds you want to get back into your native lands. Well, I'm always learning. And of course, you know, this summer I'm going to be working very hard. I'm going from more of a, a administrative or, you know, managerial role to a laborer role. I'm excited for it. I, of course, I, you know, because with food sovereignty, you know, we, we manage the gardens every year. So we, you know, we have that time, hands-on time, but this is going to be more intense. And I'm excited because of the hands-on, you know, seed keeping experience that I'll get with multiple, multiple varieties of seed and the isolation and hand pollination methods and all of that, that, you know, as, as we're going to be keeping, you know, multiple gardens across the seed savers land. So with Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, what's great is that, you know, it's, it's a platform of knowledge sharing and of support across 
multiple regions. So we have our upper, upper Midwest region and then the partnerships, the conversations, the, you know, the regular meetings that we have where we're able to discuss what's going on in our area, what we're doing, what challenges we're having. So it's a great support system and system of knowledge sharing that's greatly needed out there. Mm-hmm. And like Luke and I, depending on, you know, sometimes one of us is in other meetings or, you know, other stuff going on. So sometimes we have to tag team being able to participate in those meetings. And what's beautiful is that even though I'm not filling that coordinator role anymore, that doesn't mean I'm not a seed keeper anymore. So I'm able to continue as a seed keeper and stay engaged. And that's just really, like I said, it's, it's, we really need that support system, mm-hmm. you know, and feel like we're supported and also that we're contributing, that that's ongoing. So that's just a very valuable organization, mm-hmm. you know, for me personally, and of course, for Meskwaki Food Sovereignty, too, for Mm -hmm. the community. But like my personal journey in seed keeping, one of the things that's been very profound to me as I am working to learn my Meskwaki language is that with the seeds, there is no language barrier. You know, it's provided me with this direct connection to my ancestors, my grandmothers going back thousands of years as those seeds, you know, were once in their hands, they're now in mine. And I'm doing those same activities that they did. And it's just this incredibly healing journey that I've been on. And I'm so grateful for it. Mm, so beautiful. Thank you for, for sharing that. Yeah, the, the beauty of the seeds and to know that our ancestors, you know, planted with them in the same lands and nourished our bodies and our communities. It's, like you said, so powerful and so healing. Well, thank you for all that work with the seeds. I know also that you are an artist. Is that right? I am. Yes. Is that painting behind you, one of yours? Yeah, I've got a couple of my older paintings. They're quite a few decades old, but, Mm. you know, they are some of my favorites that I hung on to. And now that I, you know, have a little bit of free time in between jobs, I've been doing some sketching and I want to get another canvas stretched and get another painting going. I'm really excited to keep doing that. Mm. I I took a break there when I um, was raising my young children, but now they're one of them is a young adult and the other one is a teenager. So like they're much more independent now so I can do more artwork. And I'm looking forward to as our little spring plants start to come up through our in our woods. I always go out looking and foraging and seeing what's growing. And this spring, I'm not going to do sugaring this spring. I usually do that, but I have I have maple syrup and sugar left over from last year, so I'm going to take a break and um, just go out there and enjoy the woods. I have a little uh, tripod stool ordered so I can go out and do some clean air sketching. Beautiful. Yeah, mm. it's just just uh, I'm really looking forward to I um, slowing down mm. because I've I've had a very very hectic life with work and school and children and of course. 
raising the boys, you know, all of it, pets, yeah. <laughs> you, you name it. Animals you know. of many varieties. <laughs> Animals of many varieties. Yes. I was c cuddling with one of the goats and earlier today and taking some pictures of some selfies with me and the goat. Just trying to slow down and remember, you know, that, yeah, we're Tomorrow's not guaranteed, so just kind of slow down and enjoy. Mm, yes. You know. Beautiful. Well, and the importance of, you know, art and creativity and imagination to put us, you know, back in the moment. I will say to be a farmer, you have to be both a scientist and an artist, right? And like you as a seed keeper, seed keepers, you're both scientists in terms of just understanding some of the genetics and some of the way that these plants and seeds have been selected for certain qualities by our ancestors over centuries or millennia takes careful observation and um, trial and error and experimenting, all those things of science. But it's also that, that kinship with those seeds. It is, you know, much more about our values and our original instructions and taking care of our relationships and and then they inspire us with their different colors and shapes. And, and you know, the, the beauty of seeds, I think, is something that most people really can, can feel right away. And bringing back the, the diversity of some of these seeds that were lost or hidden away in archives or libraries or banks for so many years and hidden from our people. And, you know, what when people think of corn, they think of mainly two varieties, right? The, the sweet yellow corn and maybe the flower corn. But to know that there were thousands of varieties of ancestral seeds of just corn, beans, and squash alone. So it's really an empowering act uh, on multiple levels to bring these seeds back into our communities and back into our diets on our plates and in our recipes and our stews like the ones you and Kayla are going to eat here shortly. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, growing these seeds out every year, for one thing, you are ensuring their resilience. So I mentioned the derecho and how, you know, that knocked over a lot of our corn. And we really had to scramble to save all of that because we didn't want it wasting on the ground. And, you know, for one thing, observing that the old school method of, of the grid and using the mounds, that that was more resilient, but also all of that corn seed that went through that storm is going to remember it, you know. So there's each season, you know, the even like the, those wet, cold springs and then the, the hot, dry summers, like the seeds are all remembering that they're incredibly smart. Mm -hmm. and, and so we're ensuring their resilience. And in turn, they're ensuring our resilience you know, in the face of climate change, in the face of colonization, like the, you know, how I felt that connection to all of my grandmothers going so far back, you know, prior to colonization, when I was holding those seeds and growing them out and caring for the plants. And of course, you know, harvesting and processing, doing all of those things, drying the squash, I, this was the first year that I really embarked on the traditional squash drying methods. And I just was like, I asked a lot of questions from folks in the community that still do it, but I just kind of went into it on my own. And I was like, you know, really wanted to do it. And I was 
trying to find where I stored my squash. I don't know where, because <laughs> I, I put everything, you know, I dried everything and got everything put away and make sure that bugs and of course sunlight and everything like that don't ruin it, you know. And uh, yeah, I wanted to show, show you some of that. So I, mm -hmm. I'll have to dig it out and we'll take some pictures and oh, share that. would love to see that. We And to our listeners and viewers of the Native Seed Pod, so that would be great to include some of your beautiful images and art. And also for our listeners, you can find out more about the Meskwaki Food Sovereignty Initiative. They have a wonderful website and a Facebook page. And also your new role with uh, Seed Savers Exchange also has a wonderful website with lots of information there to get more information about Shelly Buffalo's wonderful work as a seed keeper. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners and our communities um, while we have you here, Shelly? Well, I'm really inspired by all of our seed keeping efforts across Indian country. And our foraging, our, you know, we have incredible ethnobiologists out there who are doing some just amazing, powerful work. And we have midwives out there. We have many, many really strong leaders throughout our, you know, this large, large community that's Turtle Island. And like all of you out there are so inspiring to me. And I thank you. I'm grateful for you. And I'm just, I'm just so pleased and, and grateful to be a part of it. Mm. And I encourage everybody to embrace their ancestral ways, embrace their ancestral foods. It may not be all seeds, you know, sometimes it's, it's you know, there's like the rice tribes, you know, that's, that's a wild food. And or, you know, some of the fish tribes, all of that, you know, just embracing your ancestral foods really does give you that connection to your ancestors. You know, the boarding school era and, you know, the dispossession of land era and all of that, all of that just washes away in one season and in one bite of that food, you regain that connection. And it's just an incredibly beautiful and powerful thing. Mm. Oh, well, Chimigwitch, thank you so much for your beautiful words and your beautiful sharing and inspiration to me and I know to all of our listeners of the Native Seed Pod. So thank you, and I hope you have a, a wonderful rest of your day and enjoy <laughs> enjoy that soup. I'll, I'll virtually imagine <laughs> taking a bite of it with uh, your beautiful corn and squash and beautiful bison. Yeah. Well, thank you, Melissa.